0: If, at this point, before we go any further, I'd like to just make sure that we dismiss, uh, for Children's Church, grades four, or actually I should say four years old through the third grade, if you'd like to head downstairs, that would be fine at this time. So the Gideons organization, first of all, how many people have been here before when I've spoken about the Gideons? If I can see a raise of hand, so pretty much almost everybody. I hope everyone knows who the Gideon organization is and what the Gideons stand for, but if not, I want to explain to you a little bit about who the Gideons are. The Gideons are an organization of born-again business and professional men. Uh, Our organization started back in 1898 with two gentlemen uh, in Wisconsin who were in a hotel room, sharing a hotel room together. Found out that they were born-again believers. Uh, They were excited about sharing the gospel, and they felt that they should start an organization of business and professional men that would go around the country and not be afraid to stand up for what they believed in sharing the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It wasn't until 1908 that they started the idea of handing out New Testaments and Bibles and placing Bibles in hotel rooms. Since that time frame, the Gideons have handed out over two billion scriptures since that time in 1908. Just in the past 15 years alone, we've handed out that second billion. So things are accelerating. They say two New Testaments are handed out every single second somewhere around the world. Our goal as Gideons, our purpose is to make sure that we hand out the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's word, to every man, woman, boy, and girl, wherever they happen to be. Our goal is to place ourselves in what we call the traffic lanes of society. Places like hotels, motels, hospitals, uh, street corners, uh, schools, universities, uh, nursing homes. Uh, We go to, like I said, schools, Um, We also go go and distribute to military, as you just saw, fire, emergency medical technicians, nurses, things like that. We try and place ourselves where people live in everyday life. We try and get out into society and hand out scriptures. Uh, We regularly will go to schools in the area, Lynchburg College, which I believe is university now. Uh, We've gone to Get Downtown. We've gone to A Day in the Park. Uh, We distribute wherever we have the opportunity to hand out God's words with the sole purpose of answering God's commandments What are the greatest commandments? First, to love the Lord your God with everything that you have, in every single way that you can, with every ounce of energy that you have. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you follow the first one, it should be pretty easy to follow the second one. That's our purpose. And then from that, we look to answer the Great Commission, which in Matthew 28 tells us to go out and make disciples, teaching them about Jesus, about God, and what he's done for them. And that's our challenge every single day. We, Gideons, are members of our local church who are businessmen. We're just like every single man in this room. Nothing different. Uh, Those of you who are members here, those of you who know me, which is pretty much everyone here, you don't see me traveling to Africa or Russia. You don't see me going too many places, although I've been to Guatemala and recently Israel. Um, You don't see me going to too many places. I live as a missionary right here in Lynchburg and in Forest, just like every single one of you should be doing every single day no different. I've just received the call, received the opportunity to serve the Lord in this awesome ministry because it really is an awesome ministry. Because I get to go around with pre-set up events that I don't structure, that the organization structures. I get to go and hand out New Testaments like these to people all around the area. And I don't even, if they're not willing to talk to me about the gospel, I don't even have to present the gospel to them. My goal is not to save them. I can't save them. The Holy Spirit saves them. My goal is to put the word of God in their hands, just like this gentleman in the military who received a camo New Testament, which I have to say, they're pretty cool. I don't have one with me, but they're pretty cool. Um, He received that New Testament. But when we place that in someone's hands, we have no idea where that's going to go or what that's going to do or who's going to receive it or who's going to read it because that person could throw it out that person could leave it somewhere or that person could be in the military and happen to mention the name of Jesus and have the opportunity from that point forward to hand that new testament to an afghani translator and then that happens to go out and god's word spreads from there my question to you is why would we all not take this up and run with it see gideons like i said are members of the local churches they're business and professional men and their wives if they choose to be part to go and hand out the word of God which is exactly what pastor sermons have been on for the past several weeks months in second corinthians chapter 4 5 and 6 where we are right now is we're called to speak of the reconciliation ministry that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation right where we are what has God done for you and for me in our everyday life and then we're called to go and share that ministry of reconciliation with every single person we come in contact with. And last week, Pastor Kurt spoke on Romans chapter 12 verse 11, which talked about us having fervor or enthusiasm, not becoming more complacent in what we do, being satisfied in our life, but being challenged every single day that there are people all around this world who are going to a real, literal hell because they've never heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ. They've never heard the gospel. Can you believe that? In today's day and age, never heard about Jesus. Never heard about him. We partner with churches, just like this one. We ask for your prayers. We pray for churches like this one. Prayers are so important because prayers work. God tells us that. And we've seen it in our own ministry and in this ministry. We pray for our churches. And we ask our churches to pray for us as we partner in ministry. This church has supported the Gideons uh, as long as I've been here. And I've had the great opportunity to be able to speak for the past three or four years about the Gideons. And I am thankful for what this church, for our members, for the way you support the Gideons. And I challenge you to continue praying for us because that's what we need. But I also challenge you to seek to be members of the Gideons International. Because again, all it is, is being willing to receive a phone call and say, will you go to a day in the park and hand out New Testaments? Are you you willing to go and speak for Jesus Christ and speak of that ministry of reconciliation that God first loved you enough to reach you and then be willing to go somewhere and hand out his word for him to do the work, not you. Be the conduit for Jesus. Be the conduit for people to realize they need Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. There is a real, literal hell, as we know, that people are going to right here, right now, today. People are closing their eyes on this earth and they are going to a real literal hell because they don't know that they need Jesus to forgive them of their sins. How should that burden us? What impact should that have? And how should that change the way we see today? Many here today may be thinking, well, we're listening to this message. What's for lunch? What's going to happen later on today? Oh, I got work tomorrow. Got things going on. It's exactly what Jesus does not want us to do. Our life is to be, I love you, Jesus, because of what you have done for me. And I want to go out and now share what you've done for me with everyone that's around me. And we have those opportunities. We have those in our lives. We have neighbors who are sick. We have neighbors who are dying. We have neighbors who need help with their lawns. We meet people as we go to the store and as we go to the, to the gas station. We have friends and family who don't, need, who don't know Jesus and need Jesus. Jesus. We have opportunities, but then there's an organization called the Gideons International that will structure opportunities for you. You don't have to be retired. You have to be over the age of 21. You have to be willing to go as a born-again Christian with business experience, being a manager, having a college degree, and being willing to go and say, I will speak for Jesus because of what he's done for me, which is what my message is going to be about today after I get through this message about the Gideons International. At this time, I'd like us to play another video, if you don't mind, uh, regarding another testimony from the Gideons, and I'll come back right after that.
1: As I looked at it that night, it was still just brand new, never touched, and I stared at it for a few moments, and I remember it's like God spoke to me and said, Alan, you know you could just take my word and put it in your pocket and read it everywhere you go. For some reason that night, it was different. I looked at it for a few minutes, and I took it out, and I laid it over there on the dresser with my stuff. Now, ladies, y'all got pocketbooks. We men, we got our stuff. We got to empty all our pockets out every evening. So I laid it over there on the dresser with my stuff. And I remember I had to go to work a few days later on the evening shift, working at a power plant there in Georgia at the time. And and I put it in my pocket that day, and I went to work. And a few hours into the shift, I remembered that I went to sit down, take a little break. As I sat down, I felt something in my back pocket. I reached around, pulled it out. It's this little green giddy New Testament. I looked at it and I thought about it for a moment. I said, boy, it's been a long time since I've read the Bible. I don't really even know where to begin. So I just began in Matthew and I began to read and before I knew it, I'd read about the first five chapters of Matthew. Well, a few hours later, I went down to the lunch area at the plant there where we all congregated for our lunchtime together and I was sitting in there doing my usual thing with all the guys we were sitting in there and I was laughing telling jokes carrying on cussing probably had the foulest mouth of anybody at that plant and I remember sitting there that night it's like God spoke to me said Alan you're gonna read my word and talk like that I just got silent I didn't say anything and I went on back out to the plant later on that night by myself and I was sitting there and I had another little break a few hours later, and I felt this New Testament in my back pocket again. I reached around there and pulled it out and began to look at it. And I said, you know, God, for the first time in many years, I believe that's you trying to speak to me. And I remember I said, God, if that's really you trying to speak to me, I want you to prove it to me. Anybody ever said that? I said, God, I don't know where to go in your word. I'm just going to open. And if that's really you, I pray that you would prove it to me. Here's what I saw when I first opened the word of God that night. Ephesians 4.29, it says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Now, I can laugh with you today, to be honest with you. But that night in that big old noisy power plant, I sat there and cried like a baby. I knew God was speaking to me for the first time in a long time. I got in the car that night on the way home, went to drive out the gate, and was prompted to do something else I hadn't done a lot of in a long time, and that was pray. And I began to talk to God, and I said, God, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in this workplace like me. If you were to ask them, did they believe in you, they'd say yes, but you can't tell it by the way they're living. And I said, God, I pray that you'd use me in this workplace to make a difference for you. Very plainly, God spoke to my heart. He said, Alan, I can't use you because you're not doing what I'd have you to do. Thought about that all the way home. Well, this became like a routine for the Lord and I, to be honest. with you, Every day, I was carrying this little New Testament with me. Every time I'd get a chance at work or anywhere, I'd take it out and read it over and over and over again. I was reading it all throughout the day. Every night, I'd drive out of the gate of that plant. I'd say, God, I pray that you'd use me in this workplace to make a difference for you. Every night, god say the same thing. He said, "Alan, I can't use you because you're not doing what I'd have you to do. Well, see, months went on by. We're on into the spring now the next year, and I'm doing one of my usual Saturday afternoon off-day things. I'm out riding the tractor, cutting grass and drinking beer. I went in the house to get another beer, and there's my oldest daughter, Courtney, who was about 11 at the time, and she's working on a project for school. It's a big poster board laid out on the kitchen table. At the top, it says, Say No to Drugs. Had all these pictures of drugs out of magazines and newspapers. Down here at the bottom, she had drawn some beer cans and written beer. And I'm standing there holding the beer. And I said, Courtney, you know, I don't believe in drinking and driving, but if you're of age, there's nothing really illegal about that. I'll never forget it. She looked at me with the most sincere look. She said, Daddy, you know alcohol is a drug. And boy, I want you to know that crushed me. I walked up the street. I tried to get those words out of my head. I couldn't get away from it. I started drinking beer more. I drank all the beer I had in the house that afternoon, that evening. I drank some wine. It didn't taste good. And by 10 o'clock that night, everybody was gone to bed. I was sitting in my recliner, drinking straight liquor out of a glass, trying to get drunk and drown those words out of my head. But I assure you, the more I drank, the more sober I became. I could not get drunk. And I sat there that night in my recliner and I began to talk to God. And I I said, God, I feel like I'm just a little kid in a big person's chair here. I feel like I'm in a hole. I said, God, this is not the way I intended my life to turn out. God, my own child thinks I'm on drugs. I said, God, I want to get out of this hole, but I can't do it if you don't help me. Very plainly, God spoke to my heart. He said, Alan, I'm not mad at you, I just want you to repent. I thought about that that Saturday night. I I got up and I went to bed, and the next morning I got up, my wife and children getting ready to go to church, and I started getting up and getting dressed, and they're looking at me like, well, it ain't Easter, and it ain't Christmas. And what's he doing? I went to church that Sunday morning, and I'll tell you the truth, when I walked in there and sat down in that pew, I didn't hear a word the preacher said. Not a word. Because all I could hear was God speaking to my heart. He said, Alan, I want you to come down here on this altar and repent. And boy, I want you to know, I thought of every excuse in the world why I couldn't go down there. I said, God, give me something else to do. I said, Lord, please, something. I said, these people in here, they know me. They know my family. If I go down there, they're going to think something's wrong with me. See, little did I know, everybody in there knew what was wrong with me because most of them had been praying for me for years. But I remember when the invitation was given that day, I heard that, and I was on the end of the pew, and I began to walk down the aisle. And I'll never forget it, I walked down the aisle and I fell on my knees at the church that day on the altar. And I cried out to God and I said, God, I made it. I'm here. And he spoke to my heart. He said, I know you did, Alan, and I've set you free. I walked over there that day and I took the preacher by the hand I made sure of my salvation I walked out of the doors of of that church that day like a ton of bricks was lifted off of me it was like the weight of the world had been lifted off of me I was just breathing outside the front doors of that church like I had never breathed like that before I had to go to work that evening on the evening shift I had to hurry home so I went home and got dressed and ready to go to work and I was driving down the highway to work and I had to turn on this little country store right here on the way to work and there was a The little place I stopped at here every day by this store. You see, not only was I addicted to alcohol, I was gambling hundreds of dollars a month on the lottery and everything else you can think of. I stopped in that little store every day and played the lottery. And I remember that day as I drove by that store, the only way I can describe it is like something out of the Twilight Zone. Because as I looked at it, it looked like it was so distant from me. It looked like I hadn't been in there in 20 years. And I said, God, I don't know how you did that, but I thank you for it. And I kept going. I got to work that day. I told everybody, I said, guys, let me tell you something. God's done a miracle in my life today. And they're all like, yeah, Alan, tell us another one. Tell us another one. As I used to hear all my old stories. I said, no, it's different today. God's done a miracle. See, that night I got in the car on the way home, and I drove out of the gate and was prompted to pray again, and I said, oh, God, I pray that you'd use me in this workplace to make a difference for you. That night, it was just silent. God didn't say anything. I knew I'd done what he wanted me to do. You see, God did use me in that workplace to make a difference for him because the next few days and weeks, people kept walking up to me at work. They'd say, Alan, what is it about you? You look different, you sound different, you talk different, you act different. I was able to tell them it's all about Jesus and the change he'd made in my life. You see, I had the privilege of leading several of my coworkers to the Lord Jesus just because of the change they saw in me. Praise God, one who is in glory today. Folks, I used to sit around in there in the break room with all those guys, and I'd be looking at lottery tickets spread out all over the table. And I used to tell those guys, I said, guys, I got news for you. I'm going to hit the jackpot one day. I got news for you. I've hit the jackpot. His name is Jesus.
0: Amen.
1: Amen. You know, I really believe I'm only able to stand here and share this testimony today with you for three reasons. First of all, because of the grace of God. Second of all, because of my wife, who never gave up on me. She just kept praying for me. And thirdly, because people like you gave that I might have this very copy of God's Word. So I say thank you, and God bless you.
0: What an awesome testimony that we could see how God has worked in that gentleman's life, in his heart, in his family, all because he reached out to the Word of God and he realized who Jesus needed to be in his life, how he needed God. There was a desperate need. Every single one of us has had a desperate need and will have a desperate need in our life. And we can't go it on our own. And we, if we are a believer, if we are a Christian, we have the answer, the ultimate answer that every single person needs. This man had a desperate need. He was away from Christ, just like any one of us was in the past. And my question is, is there anyone here who doesn't know what it means to ask Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, does not realize the desperate situation that they are facing because they're living their own life, because they're striving for themselves. They're striving to make it on their own. They have sin in their life. They have a broken relationship with God. And God says we need that relationship to be restored if we're going to face an eternity with Him. Otherwise, the only alternative is hell. And we have the opportunity as believers in Jesus Christ to share that truth, that desperate need, and the hope of what Jesus has done. We aren't left with no hope. We aren't left with, I don't know how this is going to happen. We're left with a hope of who Jesus is and what he did for you and for me on Calvary. Something we don't deserve. But because of his awesome love, much of what we were hearing about from the messages that were spoken from Scripture during the singing time, much about the songs, of the love that Jesus has for us that we can be called children of God, we don't have any other answer. But we have the opportunity to share that hope. That ministry of reconciliation that Pastor Kurt has been speaking about for the past several weeks. We have that opportunity. And the question is, will we use it? Will we go and speak for Jesus? Will we purchase the New Testaments and send those out? Two billion have gone out. There's an estimated six, six and a half billion people in the world today. Some keep coming in, some are going out. The word of God needs to go out. And Isaiah fifty-five eleven, which is the Gideon verse, says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God says in Isaiah, he's going to send his word out, and he has plans, not you and me. We may think we have plans. It's God and the Holy Spirit who has the ultimate plans, has the ultimate responsibility of making himself real, to every single man, woman, boy and girl through reading Gideon, through reading, reading New Testaments like this, or Bibles such as this. Each one of these Bibles cost $1.25, $1.30. These cost $5. My question to you is, what is the worth of one person's soul? We don't know where these New Testaments are going to go. We don't know who's going to pick up one of these Bibles. I can share with you testimony after testimony. I'm not going to do that today because I'm going to actually get into the Word and preach a message. But They say that over 2,200 people will have an opportunity to see one of these hotel Bibles while it's in the drawer in a hotel room before they get replaced. These can go anywhere. Anywhere in the world. We have an opportunity to do that. We also offer what's called gidding cards. They're in the back in this rack in the back. Where You can fill these out. We just had our next-door neighbor pass away. And we were able to donate Bibles in his name somewhere in the world. You fill out how many Bibles you want to purchase, you send this card to the family and say, in memory of this person, I am donating Bibles somewhere in the world for them. What better gift can you give someone in memory than to send the Word of God out somewhere in the world for someone to come to know Jesus for eternity? There's going to be a plate at the end of the door, at the back of the door, back of the room, at the end of today. If you feel on your heart, or in your heart that the Lord's put it on your heart to, to donate towards the Gideons, we ask that you do that. That's the last thing I'm going to say about financial aspects. My main heart here and my main goal here is the Lord's put passages on my heart over the past six months. I had an opportunity to go to Israel back in June. And uh, I'm a member of the seminary here at Liberty. I'm going to school for my Masters of Divinity. God has blessed me with that opportunity. And I had an awesome opportunity to go to Israel uh, this past spring summer. And when I went there, it is such an eye-opening experience to walk and talk in the land where Jesus and his disciples walked and talked and ministered. And the passages of Scripture that Pastor Kurt is speaking on right now, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 5, and 6, we're now in chapter 6, and this ministry of reconciliation and what God has called us to do, the message that he's preaching, along with what I took away from Israel, has been resonating with me over and over and over again. I've been praying about what to speak about this morning. And for the past several months, the Lord's put this passage on my heart over and over and over again. And even pastor's verse, the verse I mentioned to you before, Romans chapter 12, verse 11, which talks about what it means to be redeemed. It says, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord... And that fervent means to have enthusiasm, according to the Greek term. We are to be enthusiastic about the opportunities that God has given us each and every single day and what he's done for us. And over the past several months, Kurt's been talking on this ministry and what what that means to us as Christians, for the believers. Once we've accepted Jesus Christ and what that means for us and how we're supposed to carry that out, what should that look like, what should that mean? And between pastor's messages and being in Israel and my own studies, and even being a part of the youth group, the teaching that goes on in the youth group here, is phenomenal for the youth. Uh, I work with Jason Sandroth, the youth pastor, and Jason's been teaching through First John, and hearing about the love of God and what he has for us, and how we are to represent Jesus with that love. And we will know if we are a Christian if we are willing to demonstrate that love. Evidences of what it means to be a Christian. And we read some of that uh, this morning during the singing time from First John chapter 3. That's what God has called us to do, is to be that love to others. So this morning, um, I would like to be able to read um, from the book of John chapter 21, if everyone would turn there, John chapter 21. I'm going to read in just a second, but again, I had this opportunity to go to Israel. While I was in Israel, I had an opportunity to go to so many different places. I was blessed with this opportunity, it was phenomenal. Uh, we were able to go to Nazareth, to Bethlehem to Jerusalem, to the point of Jesus' crucifixion uh, at Golgotha or Calvary. We had the opportunity to go to Capernaum, um, the opportunity to go to uh, the Sea of Galilee, uh, the opportunity to go to Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. Uh, We went so many different places. Um, Some were religious sites. We also had an opportunity to learn the culture and some of the societal matters that are going on there, which was pretty interesting in and of itself. But while we were there, when I came back, people asked me, what was your favorite place to go? When you were there, what, what was the place that really just made the most for you? And you know, you look at the sites and you say, wow, Jerusalem was pretty impressive. Going to see Jerusalem, or the Garden of Gethsemane, or the Tomb, or Calvary. See all these different sites. It was amazing what God had, what, what he showed me. But again, you can't go there and come back the same. I've heard this from other people, and I I didn't really know if that was going to be true. I'm like, okay, well, we'll go and see what it's like. And the truth is you can't go there and come back the same because the scriptures open up for you completely. Your, Your eyes are opened to what actually took place there, the context, what it looks like, what are the experiences that are going on, what's the society like, the context of what Jesus is talking about in the scriptures or the disciples are talking about or the Apostle Paul are totally opened up for you. And I had that opportunity to go there and see what was there. And in John chapter 21, I want to lay some, some context, for, context for you before we actually read John chapter 21. Um, John chapter 20, the chapter just before that, actually was all about Jesus' resurrection. Just before that, obviously, was his death, uh, his crucifixion, the trial and crucifixion, and then his resurrection. And in John chapter 20, just before John chapter 21, we see that both or all the, uh, the disciples uh, had met Jesus. Uh, he had come back to them, he had manifested himself in reality to them, he had shown himself to them after his crucifixion, and he made himself real. And last year, when I had an, op- an opportunity to talk here, I talked about the difference that that made on the apostles, on the disciples. The drastic difference, because they went from, for three years they walked and talked with Jesus. They claimed to know who Jesus was, they claim to dedicate themselves. They, they said, I, I, I'm, I'm your follower. I love you. I believe that you are God, the son of the living God. That's what Peter said to Jesus in um, Matthew when he said, who do you say that I am? While he was in Caesarea Philippi. He said, who do you say that I am? He says, I, "I believe some say you're a prophet. Some say you're all different things. But I know you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what he said earlier in, in, in the scripture before the actual crucifixion. Same thing with the other disciples. They had a belief, they had a trust in him, much like we do. We all claim to have come to salvation. We all claim to have understood what the scripture says, and we're excited about who Jesus is when we come to salvation. But then what happens? Hard times come, challenges come. Everyday life takes place, and we kind of lose that fervor. We lose that enthusiasm for what it means to be redeemed. And here the disciples have gone through the crucifixion, something they never would have thought would have taken place. I mean, Jesus had come. The Savior, the Messiah, was here. And all of a sudden, one day, he's gone. And they're all sitting there, they're all sitting around, they're all scared. And if you remember, Peter, a few chapters before in chapter 18, denied Jesus three times. After he promised him, I will go to the point of death for you. And Jesus said, really, Peter? You'll go to the point of death? What do we say in our hearts right now? If Jesus was to stand in this room today, what would we say to Jesus when he says, are you willing to die for me? What would be your answer? I challenge myself. What would be my answer if he was to say, are you willing to die for me? And Peter said, I will die for you. And Jesus said, really, Peter? Tonight, before the rooster crows, which was early in the morning, you will deny me three times. And that's what took place. Peter denied him, and here Jesus is, he comes back to life. And he appears to the disciples. And they're all amazed. They're all excited. He, Jesus is back. Except for Thomas. What happened with Thomas? In John chapter 20, Thomas says, I will not believe because he was not there when Jesus first appeared. He says, I will not believe unless I can put my hand in the nail prints. Unless I can put my hand in his side where the spear went in. I will not believe. But what happened in that instant? Last year I spoke on this. In John chapter 20, I believe it's verse 28, um, Jesus appears, and the words out of Thomas's mouth are, my Lord and my God. What he means by my Lord and my God, he's giving authority, he's giving sole ownership to Jesus saying, I now see, I now believe, I have experienced Jesus in my life, the resurrection. And I want to change, I want to follow you with all that I have. And all the apostles did this, all the disciples did this. And it changed them eternally. Meaning the resurrected Savior changed them eternally. Because why? How do we know that? We know that because they were all willing to go to the point of death. All the different apostles were martyred, except for John. Every single one of them was martyred in some way, shape, or form willing to die for the cause of Jesus Christ, if Jesus wasn't who he said he would was, why would they be willing to do that? So, here we are in John chapter 21. The resurrection has taken place. And I can set the groundwork. Jesus has told them to go to Galilee. Jesus actually didn't tell them. The angels told Mary Magdalene, told Mary, mother of James. James was Jesus' brother, so Mary, Jesus' mother, and some others were at the tomb. And the angel says to them, go go and wait ahead of me in Galilee. And that's where the disciples are now. They're going ahead to Galilee. Before I go there, I'd like to ask if uh, we could bring up on the screen the presentation, please. I want to lay some more setting here. This is the place of the skull that we read about Golgotha, Calvary. While I was there, this is a picture actually from 1905. It's an old picture because it's changed since then. Okay, while you're there, you're able to see the presentation from the people here at where they th- believe the cross was and at the, the empty tomb. The place of the skull is right here. I don't know if you can see that. The eyes, the nose, mouth, right there. In talking with the people there, there are many scholars who do not believe Jesus' cross was up on top of the place of the skull. They believe his cross was somewhere down here along the road. The reason why is because the Romans considered crucifixion not just from the point of brutality, but shame. The criminals that were meant to be hung on the cross, the reason why Jesus, the Almighty God, the Son of the Living God, should not have been hung on the cross is because he was not a criminal. He was not even just a good person. He only did good. But he was willing to go and be hung on a cross on eye level where people who were walking along with camels could spit on him, slap him, call him all manners of names. And he stood there on the cross, and I remember Pastor Kurt talking about this weeks ago. It wasn't just the physical. It wasn't just the brutal slaying. It wasn't the blood and the bleeding and the suffering and the gasping for breath. That wasn't just the horrible part about his crucifixion. It was that he bore all of my shame. But he didn't just bear all of my shame. He bore everyone's shame that's out here. And every man, woman, boy, or girl that ever lived. And he did that not because he deserved it, but because he loved you. Because he loved me. And he did that at eye level. Today, if you look, they've built a bus terminal where Jesus would have been crucified. It's all around this area here. The rock has disintegrated. This is the places where the eye sockets were, where the nose were. The reason they think this is the place is because they didn't have street signs back then. They didn't have, you know, uh, Forest Avenue. They didn't have Greenview Drive. They had the place of the skull. And there aren't very many places that have the look of the skull. And about 200 yards to the left over here is where the empty tomb is, where they believe that is the empty tomb. And it's amazing to see. Peter and his disciples experienced this. They experienced their own shame and they knew that Jesus bore all that shame for them. And I'm laying the foundation for John chapter 21 because now Jesus is back alive and they're realizing they sinned against him, they turned against him, they denied him. They denied his very being. And yet he hung there in shame, the perfect son of God, and he hung there in shame. This is called the primacy of Peter. There's a Catholic church right over here. Along these shores is where John chapter 21 took place. It's very impressive to stand there, to know that Jesus was there with the disciples, to know that I was standing right in that place, and I can see what Jesus, really what John was writing about, what he was talking about. And the disciples feeling that shame, that guilt of having turned Jesus, I don't want to say turned him in, but not stand up for him. And he died for them. And now, we're going to go into John chapter 21. So let's read John chapter 21 together. Hope everyone is there. Okay, it says, After these things, that's why I set the context of the message. After these things, after the resurrection took place, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Tiberius is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in, in this way. And if you were to go to Mark chapter 16, verses 11 through 14, it clarifies what's going on here. It clarifies that Jesus appeared many times to various people, at various different places. Uh, very similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it talks about all the different places where Jesus met, uh, he met the, dis- the disciples, He met Mary, uh, He met 500, uh, He met various different people in different places. So as you read this, there's, there's a background setting that's going on here. And it says, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and the two others of his disciples were together. One thing I want to lay the context for. What was Jesus expecting for his disciples? Yes, he told them to go back to Galilee, but what was the overall perspective? What did he call them to do? Anyone? What did Jesus call his disciples to be and to do? To be fishermen of men. He wanted them to be fish. What were they? They were fishermen. Earthly fishermen for their, li- 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 their well-being and their livestock. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, that's where it talks about Jesus having met these men on the shores as they were fishing. And he said to them, come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they were to be fishers of men, but after the resurrection, what did they go back to doing? They went all the way to Galilee, and they went back to their previous lives. I ask you a question. We've all been saved. We talk about the salvation of Jesus and us experiencing the salvation of Jesus. Do we do what God calls us to do? And I'm talking to myself here, too. And maybe, you know, there's people here that we serve all day long. We serve, this church is a wonderful church for serving and for loving others, and for, call, and for reaching out and carrying out the gospel message, this ministry of reconciliation. I don't want to make it sound like we don't. But I can tell you in my own life, I have not always lived this way. I have not always been willing to go out and be what God wanted me to be. And here's Jesus. He's setting up the presentation. He's setting up to meet them in Galilee, and they've gone back to fishing. So it says, uh, um, it says and sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And so we know who the sons of Zebedee are. They're James and John, according to the passages here. Uh, the ones I said, Matthew four eighteen through 22 Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Here they are going back to the old life. And they're going to strive on their own, and they're going to try and do what's necessary. They're going to work their day, they're going to work their night, and they're going to do everything they know what they need to do. Going back to with disobedience, not following what God had planned. Going back and being willing to do what they wanted to do in their own control. And it says, but when the day was now, was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Seems similar to what took place on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24, verse 22 where there were two men walking, and Jesus walked among them, and they, their ears were burning, their ears were itching, but they didn't recognize that it was Jesus. Now, I don't know if they didn't recognize Jesus. It doesn't really say because Jesus didn't make himself real to them or because they were off in the boat, but it seems awfully similar. So Jesus said to them, Children, do, not, do you not have any fish? Or, I'm sorry, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. So here he is yelling from the shore. They've been fishing all night. They're trying to take care of their own needs, their own wants. They've been fishing all night long, going back. They know that you know, this is what, they, or they think this is what they need to do. And here's this gentleman on the shore saying to them, hey, gentlemen, you've been fishing all night. doesn't look like you caught anything, did you? And they're saying no. Now the New Jersey in me, because that's where I'm from, the New Jersey in me, and thinking of what other people in New Jersey would say would be like, are you talking to me? I'm out there in the boat, and I've been working all night long, and you're asking me if I caught fish. You see I, don't, I didn't catch any fish. But he's making a point here. He, tell, he asked them, did you, did you catch any fish? And it says, um, let's see, where was I? But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood at the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do, do you not have any fish? Do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and when they were not able to, to haul it in because of the great number of fish, very similar to Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 11, which is where Jesus, when he was trying to minister to the people, got into the boat, and they cast off. And they were trying to fish and they weren't able to bring in the haul of fish. But God in his omniscience knew where the fish were. It was in his control, not ours. Very symbolic to our own lives how we try and steer ourselves, how we try and be in control, how we try and take ownership for what we think we need to do, when what we really need to do is rest in the Master and what He has for us. I'd like to point out how they lost sight of their original call, of what God had called them to do. That's the first point I'd like to make. That they lost sight of that original call of who God wanted them to be and what He wanted them to do. And they were trying to do this in their own stance. Kurt's been talking about this ministry of reconciliation. Do we submit to Christ on a daily basis and seek His wisdom, His guidance, His plan for ministry? Whether it's the Gideon ministry or anything else that we try and carry out. Are we seeking Him? Do we look to Him? You know, Ben, a few weeks ago, uh, going through the Go Mad training, remember the Go Mad training? Go, make a difference. Mad, make a difference. He was asking and challenging us How many of us pray daily for the souls of the lost? What does that look like? I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane about to go to the cross and he asked his disciples to just pray with him for one hour. And Ben posed the question to the entire Sunday school. He asked the question question of how often do we pray and for how long are we praying for the lost? How do we spend our time? How many pray at least 15 minutes a day for the lost? Not too many hands went up. We pray more time for people to stay out of heaven than we pray for people to get into heaven, I think on a regular basis. And there's nothing wrong with praying for people who are sick and in need. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is, how much time do we pray for the lost? Where is the enthusiasm, the fervor for this ministry of Reconciliation. I stood on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and I stood there, and my professor, Dr. Leo Purser, was preaching this same type of a sermon. And he's saying, we're seminarians, and we're looking to go and serve the Lord in various ministries. Have we lost sight of our original call, and where do we live our lives? How do we represent this to our children, to our youth, to our husbands, our wives, Many people are living for today, for the enjoyment of today, the enjoyment of tomorrow, what tomorrow has to bring us. And you know, my next-door neighbor just passed away. He was a believer, so we know where he is. He's home in heaven. But in the book of James, it talks about our life being but a vapor. Just a very short period of time. When you're young, you don't realize it. Because uh, when you're young like me, no. When you're young, you don't realize it because you think you have the whole world in front of you. You have years to go. When you get older, like myself, you realize, there may not be that much time left. And I think of the phrase, how does it go? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I think of what Kurt's been teaching about the Bema Seat Judgment, and wood, hay, and stubble compared to the golds and the gems and the silver. That's gonna be put in the fire at the Bema Seat Judgment, and it's gonna be measured and burn to see where do we stand with rewards when we get to heaven. It's not a matter of salvation, but when I get to heaven, I want to be able to hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. My question is, do we, as Christians, many times lose sight of the call that Jesus has on our lives, on what he's asked us to do? doesn't mean we have to go to Ethiopia or Central America. It means, are we living the life that Jesus would want us to live right here in Lynchburg, in Forest, Alta Vista, Amherst, wherever we are, or are we living it for ourselves? It should be a challenge for each and every single one of us. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea, started running for Jesus. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus knows they've gone back to their old ways. Jesus came, he knew, and he loved them. And he went to the banks of the river, of the, of the sea, Sea of Galilee, which is not very large, looks more like a lake, but it's, it's pretty large. He went back there and he lit a fire and he sat there and waited for them to come in to make them breakfast, breakfast of fish. I think of the love, the meekness, the humility. I think of Jesus waiting for us to give up of ourselves and say, hmm, maybe it's not about me. Maybe it's about you. I think of the love that Jesus gives to us, each and every single one of us, the love we don't deserve, the sacrifice he gave to us, even as believers, that he wants to see the good for us. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net uh, to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Should have torn the net. But God didn't have that for them. God prepares. How many times does God, you think, take care of you and me every single day when we're not asking for it? When we're not looking for it? you think he's watching out for you and for me, the blessings that he provides, the love that he shows, the amazing compassion, and yes, bad things happen. Kurt's talking about those bad things right now as we go through the, the, the stresses and the things in life that pull us away um, in 2 in Corinthians chapter 6. I'm not trying to talk about that, but I'm saying, do you see God's hand in your life, where he holds you, where he wants you to go, and he's asking you, he's asking me, to distribute that message of reconciliation to everyone that we come in contact with. Goes on to say, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples uh, ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. <clears throat> this is how the third time to- this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised the dead. Here's the next important part. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This is going back to the previous context of where the disciples were, what was taking place, what had taken place before the resurrection. Simon, son of John, do you love me? I wonder, does Jesus say that to us on a regular basis? Do you love me? What does Simon Peter say? Um, he says, me? Or he says, do you love me more than these? He said, to you, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What is he saying when he says, do you love me more than these? What's the context we're talking about? We're talking about life situations, going back to your own ways of living. Do you love me more than the control that you want? More than the, the things that you want? Do you love me more than that? Or are you willing to go back your old ways. Do you love me more than these? He said, yes, you know that I love you. He said, tend my lambs. He said to him, and again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. What's going on here? The thing is, is when you think, like Peter had, that he had failed, Jesus is basically reinstating Peter and saying, I know that you love me. Are you going to carry out what I've asked you to do? When you think you failed in whatever your calling was that Jesus had given you. Many of you, as you came to Christ, you had a fervor, you had a want to follow him. What did God call you to do? What did God call me to do? Did we fail in that calling? The awesome thing is that Jesus comes to us. He comes to us on the shores and he sits there and he says, I'm here for you. I love you. I forgive you. Keep going. Go where I'm calling you to go. Be willing to go and be that ministry of reconciliation. If you read further, it goes on to say, Truly, truly, I, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you, want, where you do not wish to go. Here, scholars say he's talking about when you stretch out your arms, Peter died the same way Jesus did, just he was hung upside down. He was going to be crucified as well. Jesus was letting him know in the manner in which he was going to die. He was letting him know that that was going to take place. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. The ministry comes with all kinds of trials. Ministry doesn't come and it's just easy. Kurt's been talking about church in China and the church all around the world. People who are dying every single day for the purpose of carrying out Jesus' ministry. Not just living it for themselves, but being willing to share who Jesus is and what he's done for every single one of us. We have the freedoms here right now where we can go out and tell people about Jesus and hand out New Testaments like this one and share who Jesus is. Are we doing that? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to go? Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back in his bosom at the Last Supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So here, Jesus is walking along with Peter along the the edge of the sea. And Peter says to him, what's going to happen to John? John is the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was resting against him at the Last Supper. When someone asked, who's going to betray you? That's what the scripture just talked about. I don't know if you remember that, if you go back to the passage. Someone asked, who's actually going to betray you? That's what John said to him. And Peter's asking, and Peter's looking at John and saying, well, you told me how I'm going to die. What's going to happen uh, to John? That's what Peter said about John. He asked Jesus about John. And Jesus says, don't worry what's going to happen to John. You are to follow out or carry out the ministry that I have called you to do. Each and every single one of us is called to this ministry, as Kurt's been talking about. It's ministry of love. It's a ministry of compassion and being willing to go out and do what Jesus has asked us to do. For what Jesus has reconciled us with, we're to now be going out and being willing to share that ministry. I stood on the edge of that sea, and I can remember the times when I was not living for Jesus as I should. I can remember that almost nine years ago now, the Lord had allowed me to have cancer, kidney cancer. I had to have my, one of my kidneys removed. And at that time, I sat there and I said, Lord, is this the time you're going to take me? Is this the time that I'm going to go home? And I knew who he was as my Savior. But when you're presented with that kind of a situation, your life changes. Everything changes. The way you look at life, the way you see things, Even the way you taste things and uh, experience things, everything is different because you look at it from a different light that life could have been over like that. And I stood on the edge of the Sea of Galilee and I thought to myself, what this scripture is talking about, the way Jesus was talking to Peter, the way he reinstated Peter, the way he was calling Peter to fulfill the ministry, when our life is but a vapor, I sat there and I said, Jesus, almost nine years ago, you could have taken my life. My life could have been that vapor. And I hadn't done what I wanted to do for you. I hadn't been who he had asked me to be. I hadn't carried out what he asks us to do every single day. And you know what I'm talking about. You ever have that voice when God wants you to talk to somebody about him? You ever have somebody at work or someone somewhere else, you're, you're somewhere and They say something and they say something about Christianity or about Christians or about Jesus and they joke in a bad way and you kind of, (laughs) kind of thing. You kind of hide it. You kind of cover it up. You ever feel that? You ever feel that tug that you just denied Jesus to someone? You ever not carry out what you know the Lord is asking you to carry out? But we don't know what tomorrow holds. Our life is but a vapor. And I stood there and I thought, Jesus, eight, nine years ago, I stood virtually on the Sea of Galilee and I cried out to him and I said, Lord, I want to serve you. You can take my life if that's what you want to do. Or if that's what your plan is. But Lord, I ask you to be able to serve you more. If your life was called upon you today, first of all, I don't know if you know Jesus as your personal Savior. Jesus came and died for you. He did everything for you and you, we have a desperate need. We stand in desperation today because our life could be over like that. If you have not come to the reality that we need to ask Jesus to steer our life, to be in control of our life, that we have sinned before him, committed sin, and broken his law, and we stand in judgment already, it's as if we stand in front of a courtroom, and God is standing there, and if we were to close our eyes on this earth, he would say to us, what right do you have to get into heaven? And if all we can say is, well, I think I've been a good person, I think you're a loving God, so I think you're going to let me in, we're going to be pretty sorry that the answer is, you're not going to heaven. The fact of the matter is, is when we stand before Jesus, there's nothing that we could have done that's going to get us into that heaven except what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, in dying on the cross. And when we stand there, God the judge is going to say, you're not here for all the things you did right. You're here for the one thing you did wrong. That should hurt us. That should make us see do I need that forgiveness of Jesus? And what has he done for me? Did he really die for me? And if you don't know that today, I ask you as we're going out from here to stop and talk to me. Stop, to one of, stop and talk to one of the other church leaders that are here. Because I'd like you to know Jesus. But for those who are Christians, the question is, if God was to give you that phone call today, have you done what he's asked you to do? Have you experienced the love of Jesus Christ enough that when he hung in that shame on Golgotha, on Calvary, and he thought about you, and he saved you, and you've acknowledged him, he's shown you that love? Are we willing to go and live out that ministry that he's asked us to do? The Gideons are here to do that. I would challenge every man that's here. We have the opportunities. We have the opportunities to go, we need you. Jesus is calling. Will you answer that call? Let's close in prayer.